if you've had to drag your family around one of those mega resorts on a sunny Saturday in the heart of winter, and you spent over a thousand bucks for the privilege of doing it, you'd probably rather stick a ski pole in your eye than do it again, right? (laughs) It's those experiences that drive people away from the sport. And hopefully, before they finally bail on skiing, they find an independent resort and give that a try before we completely lose them. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, pumped up to host a repeat guest on the podcast today. First up, I want to ask you a favor. Please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. The pod is awesome, but the email newsletter is the heart of this whole operation. There is an article that accompanies this conversation and every Storm Skiing podcast that breaks down every single thing that we touch on in even more detail. When you subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter, that article and every one of the at least 100 additional articles that I write each year exploring the world of lift serve skiing in North America will drop directly into your inbox. Or, if you prefer, into the Substack app. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Skiing newsletter instead. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to Doug Fish and Indy Pass, here is a quick word from my partner, Aspenware. Close your ticket windows with Aspenware. Aspenware is the leading e-commerce solution purpose-built for the mountain resort industry. They create robust platforms that drive revenue while producing a seamless online experience for resort guests. Utilizing their extensive experience within the mountain resort industry, Aspenware creates customized e-commerce platforms that ensure resort guests spend more time doing what they love and less time standing in lines or booking their trip online. One client found such success with Aspenware's e-commerce solution that they were able to reduce their ticket windows from 13 all the way down to just two. The resort then reassigned those staff members into positions where they could actively engage with guests and bring value to other areas of the resort. Based in Denver, Colorado, Aspenware stands apart as an innovator. They understand the value that software and technology bring to a mountain resort, and they strive to create solutions so good that they seem invisible. Visit Aspenware.com to learn more. Episode 125, Doug Fish, president and founder of the Indie Pass. It is such a big part of skiing now that it's hard to believe that the Indy Pass debuted just about four years ago with only 10 partners all in the West for the ill-fated 2019-20 to ski season. Since then, Indy has exploded, signing for the 2022-23 to ski season 139 partners across the US, Canada, and Japan. 105 of those were Alpine ski areas, giving pass holders up to 210 days of downhill skiing for the remarkable early bird price of just $279. And while Indy debuted as a reaction to the big name Epic and Icon passes, the coalition has managed to add some of the finest ski areas in America, including J Peak, Vermont, Powder Mountain, Utah, 
and Mount Hood Meadows, Oregon. Indy has always been nimble, adding cross-country and allied programs, offering creative spring discounts, shuffling its sales dates and blackouts, and generally flexing to the market as it grew. Then in March, just as the pass seemed to be gaining the mass market momentum that it had been angling for from the start, the pass made the biggest change yet. Founder Doug Fish, who is my guest on today's podcast and remains involved, sold IndyPass to his longtime tech partner, Entebeni Systems. That same day, another huge change. Indy announced that it would limit pass sales for the 2023-24 to ski season. So, what to make of all this? The fact that change is constant does not make it any easier. The second this news dropped, I tracked Doug down to help us make sense of everything going on. And I want to be transparent about this before we get to the conversation. What you are about to hear is actually two separate podcasts woven into one. On Monday, April 3rd, Doug and I connected to talk through the ownership change and Indy's outlook for 2023 to 24 pass sales. A couple days later, before I could put this thing through an edit, I busted out for a long family ski trip to Montana. Spring break for the kids, no choice on the dates. While I was there, Indy abruptly halted pass sales for next ski season. And while I immediately covered this news for the Storm Skiing newsletter, <clears throat> again, another reason to subscribe to that newsletter at stormskiing.com, the announcement made a chunk of our initial podcast conversation irrelevant. Rather than push stale content out to you, I cut the outdated parts of that original conversation and got Doug on the phone for a bonus 15 minutes just a couple days ago on Thursday, April 20th. These two conversations sit back to back in the podcast with a clear note separating them, but I wanted you to know that before you started listening. And one additional note, there is a part of this podcast where I note that Indy has re-signed 103 out of its 105 Alpine partners for the 2023 to 24 ski season. It was too complicated to cut that bit, so I will update it here. With the announced renewal of Mount Hood Meadows on April 10th, Indy has now re-signed every single eligible Alpine partner for next ski season. The exception, of course, is Snow Valley, California, which Altera Mountain Company purchased and added to their Icon Pass. No longer a great fit for Indy, I think you will agree. All right, enough admin. Let's do it. My guest today is the president and founder of the Indy Pass, which for the 2022-23 to 23 ski season provides two days of skiing each at 105 Alpine and 20 cross-country ski areas in the U.S., Canada, and Japan. Last month, he announced that Indy's longtime technology partner, Entebeni Systems, had purchased the pass for an undisclosed price. But he is not going anywhere. He is a very good friend of the Storm and a four-time guest on the Storm Skiing Podcast. Doug Fish joins me. Doug, my man, it is always an enormous privilege and pleasure to get together with you. It has just been amazing to watch this thing grow. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Stu. Uh, you know, I love these interviews with you. You've been a great friend of the Indy Pass, and, and uh, I'm always excited to chat. Other than that, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm very relaxed, and uh, this is probably the most stressful time of year in IndyPass land. And right now I'm sleeping like a baby. I had to ask, Doug, it's been a month now. So you've had some time to process this. You've sold the IndyPass, this amazing thing that you've created for skiers and for the ski industry. 
and you've had some time to process it. I mean, it sounds like you're doing pretty good, but tell me, how are you feeling about that sale? You know, I'm feeling great about it. I, I'm still involved. I'm in charge of resort relations and renewals and expansion, strategic planning, marketing. I mean, all of the things that I loved about the Indy Pass before, and I'm not dealing with HR and customer service and technology issues. Uh, are we going to be able to, you know, make payroll this month? You know, none of that stuff is uh, worrying me anymore. And I, I'm feeling good. So take us into your head here. What was your motivation for selling? How long had you been thinking about it? Because it, it I mean, to me, it feels like the Indy Pass debuted yesterday when it was four years ago. So, so how long have you been cooking with this and what made you finally say, okay, this is it, I'm selling? Yeah, it took a year to uh, conceive of and, and create the Indy Pass before we actually started selling it to resorts. So it's actually been five years. But, you know, Stu, I, I learned a long time ago in business, the only reason to start a business is to someday sell it, whether it's to a third party or your family or kids or, you know, your family's going to sell it after you die. But eventually the business that you start is going to sell. So that's always been a consideration. The timing, of course, was was always up in the air and, and uh, we choose to do it now because of a number of factors. What were those factors? Well, uh, first and foremost is... Uh, I'm old. Okay. <laughs> I I turned 67 last week and uh, yesterday I had an incredible waist deep day at Mount Hood Meadows. <laughs> it was phenomenal, okay? But I can tell you it's not as easy as it used to be. <laughs> you know, I've got a lot of miles on my body. I've had two heart attacks, uh, double bypass, you know, I got to slow down at some point or I'm not going to be able to ski for, you know, as long as I want to ski. And my wife had a lot to do with it. You know, she slapped some sense into me and said, look, you know, now's a good time to start slowing down and let's let's enjoy life. And I took her advice. It's always good. And that's why we did it. So how do you find that balance, Doug, between doing all the things that keep the Indy Pass moving forward, setting aside what you don't like? I mean, this was not just a job. You weren't hired to do this. This is something you invented. And... Mm -hmm that gives you this sense of ownership and stewardship that personally, I don't think you can ever have for a job you're hired for unless you're wired in a certain way. Mm -hmm. How hard has it been to make that transition from being the guy to being one of the guys on the team that's in charge of certain parts of this, but is not the sole reason for its existence and the thing that is needed to keep it going? Well, I'd be bullshitting if I said I wasn't a little bit sad about letting my baby go. You know, that's normal. But I'm getting over it and I knew that was going to be part of the part of the process, but it's good. I thrive on the adrenaline rush and the highs and the lows of running a small business. This is not my first one and the the hardest thing for me is going to be replacing that you know, that adrenaline and uh, those endorphins that you get from the wins and how you pick yourself up after the losses. That's what running a business is all about. And, you know, you experience that when you work for somebody else, but uh, not to the degree. And, you know, that's going to be the hardest thing for me to replace, I think. What do you think has been the biggest high from this? Um, I, the most I've gotten out of it is is the people I've met. 
and uh, the relationships that, that I've created. And, and um, you know, it's really, really been gratifying. That's been the best thing for me. And, you know, obviously winning and seeing the growth and, you know, seeing uh, your vision come to fruition is great. But the long lasting thing for me will be the, the friendships I've developed. What about the lows, Doug? Well, those, you know, I won't miss those. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what have they been? You know, when, when you build something mm-hmm. like this, there's there's so much inherent positives in it and goods in it. And it's amazing to see something made tangible from your imagination, especially when you see other people support it, right? Because you have this idea and you don't know if it's going to work. But with a public presence comes public scrutiny. So there's Mm -hmm. no shortage of people ready and willing to tell you that you suck, right? So, you know, that to me is the most obvious for me personally has been the low point of, of having this thing that I've built. So I'm curious from your point of view, you know, was it, was it losing partners? Was it, was it that social media scrutiny? Was it dealing with customers? What, what, What was it about this that, that has been frustrating for you? Yeah, I think probably the hardest thing for me was the fear of losing a key resort or even an, even a small one. You know, you just hate to see them go away. It's like, you know, I, most of my career was spent in marketing on the agency side and losing a client is just soul crushing. And the other thing, like I say, is, you know, you read the social media comments and it's hard not to take them personally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can't please everybody. And I was just, you know, I'm just thankful that we have lost very few resorts and 98% of the comments and the uh, 98% of our, our pass holders and, and resorts are, are very happy with the program and they tell us that regularly. So, you know, it's a lot easier to deal with the negatives when you have so many positive things happening. It's amazing though, isn't it? How outsized of an impact those 2% can have on your mental state and emotions, at least for me. I don't know if you find it the same. Yeah, it's so true. And this is the most public thing I've done in my life. And it's been very interesting. So you finally sell. And obviously, it's a it's a very big announcement. It's a very big deal. And I feel like it happened kind of at the time when you were just really catching some momentum. You know, anything takes some time to gel and really catch on. And Mm-hmm. And I've obviously been following IndyPass since the beginning, but for the great mass of skiers, I, I think this thing has sort of, at least from my point of view, kind of reached the critical mass. So with that public presence comes scrutiny. What has the reaction been like so far from your pass holders, from your resort partners? What what has that reaction been like? It's been really great. Pass holders, uh, very positive. You know, we announced a number of things that are going to benefit them. And, you know, if you read the comments on our pass holder uh, Facebook page, you'll see just, like I said, 98% positive comments. And from the resorts, the same thing. Everybody will give you the benefit of the doubt. Sure, if the new guys screw it up, they're going to you know have to deal with it. But for the most part, everybody's saying, okay, great. You know, sounds good. Let's see how it goes. There's been a couple of folks who have, you know, had some reservations about it, but, you know, nothing that's we didn't expect and nothing that's going to slow us down by any means. And, you know, you, we're going to retain 100% of our resorts this year. And that in itself, I think, speaks to the confidence 
that the market has in what we're doing. You will lose one partner, Snow Valley, which was purchased by Altera Mountain Company. If mm-hmm. if the circumstance is that you're only going to lose partner mountains when they're purchased by Vale or Altera, I think that's probably a set of circumstances you can live with. I'll take that all day long. <laughs> that's that's the, the only reason we lose a resort. <laughs> you know, let's you can book it right now. That's fine. You know, it, it's too bad. I skied Snow Valley a couple of weeks ago, and that's a fun little mountain. I mean, you would never think yeah. it above LA, but they just got in this big snowstorm. So all the trees were in play. It wasn't that busy. They have a nice little six pack going out of this, out of the base. So it's yeah. uh it's a neat little place. And, and it's, I, I guess my point here is it's not a place most people would have heard of, but I think it's a place that most indie pass holders, most people listening to this podcast, had they stumbled upon it would have really liked it. And, and I think the indie pass, Doug, is full of these sorts of mountains that are kind of unassuming, don't have the maybe 3,000 foot vertical drop or the 10 high speed lifts, but mm-hmm. the skiing is is really good and really fun and can give you a really awesome day. Yeah, no question. I haven't skied there myself, but you know I've looked over their trail map and done my research and it's a quintessential Indy Pass mountain. There's no question. So you're you're about a month into this thing. You have uh, Eric Mogensen, who's the head of Etabini Systems, running the crucial parts of the Indy Pass. Some of the crucial parts of it that that you mm-hmm. sounded like wanted to forfeit. How's that dynamic been? Are, are you are you pretty happy with that at this point? I mean, how hard was it for you to give up control? Um, you know. A little bit. It's a little hard to give up control, but, you know, we we worked on this thing for a year. And when you sell a business, you know, you're you're not just going to cash a check and then keep running things the way it always was. That never happens. And I sold to these guys because they know what they're doing. They're extremely committed. And I think they're going to do a great job with it. And, and like I said, I'm, I'm getting used to the, uh, the slower pace of life. It's, it's kind of nice. Yeah, those waist-deep powder days at Mount Hood Meadows don't happen if you're stuck in meetings all day. So No, they, they don't. I'm going to start doing more of those on Tuesdays. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. All right. So rewind five years and the Indy Pass didn't exist. And I think that most folks at that time from a remove would have looked at the national landscape and said, okay, Vale established this thing with the Epic Pass, pretty successful. Altera mm-hmm. copied it with the Icon Pass and that's it. There's no room for anyone else. And you thought differently. So just when you thought the industry was out of ideas and we were in this face-off between the Giants and everyone else was scrambling left behind. You created this thing and the industry bought in in mass. I'm looking at this partner list right now, 139 ski area partners for the 2022 mm-hmm. to 23 ski season. That's amazing. That doesn't happen by accident. What do you attribute this mass adoption to, Doug? Why did 139 ski areas buy into something that didn't exist five years ago? Because they wanted to, you know, they were they were hungry for something like this, and you know, people had talked about it for years. Uh, they tell me, and we came along at the right time. You know, there's uh, timing is the key to life. Luck's got nothing to do with it, and 
2019, multi-mountain passes were white hot. Icon was exploding. Epic was, you know, the standard. The Mountain Collective was killing it. And yet there were three-fourths of the, of the resorts in North America weren't able to come to the party. And, you know, consumers at the same time were paying more and more every day for a daily lift ticket. And so something had to give. A third pass was going to happen eventually. And we were just the, you know, the knuckleheads that decided we were going to go for it. If we hadn't done it, somebody else would have. And we applied best in class technology to basically a punch card. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, that allowed us to sell the passes and track visits in the cloud because all these resorts are on different systems. It couldn't go through their POS. And timing and, and technology, that was the key to our, our business model succeeding. So let's focus on the technology first. So let's talk about Entebeni Systems. This is, well, it was a very off-the-radar company. Tell us mm -hmm. about Entebeni, Doug. Who are they? What do they do? So Entebeni Systems has been our technology partner since day one. They provide point-of-sale systems and e-com solutions for small to mid-sized ski areas. That's all they do. They've been around since 2016, I think, um, and they've just been taking their time. You know, they're off the radar for a reason, and they've done it purposefully because they've grown at a, a steady but reasonably modest pace. They're just a good fit. So tell us a little bit about the culture event to Penny, because I have to imagine that working that closely with them, you got a good understanding of their culture. And there's a million mm -hmm. tech companies out there. There's a lot of point of sale companies out there. You know, tech skills are not that uncommon, but but building a great culture is harder mm -hmm. than building a great tech platform. Talk about that culture at Entebeni, what you saw in that and what made you want to be part of that permanently. Entebeni's culture is 100% skiing. You know, they don't do software for parking garages or hotels. They only focus on skiing and they only focus on, on small to mid-sized ski resorts. You know, everybody in the ski business, it's their, their dream that someday they're going to get a contract with Vail Resorts. That's the last thing Antibeni wants. <laughs> You know, and if Vail came calling, they would, you know, they would kick him out the door, you know, and that's, that's, nobody else can say that in the ski business, but they are, they're fully committed to just like us. I mean, if Powder would have called up and said, hey, we want to put uh, Durango on the Indy Pass, I'd tell him no, because it, you know, it goes against our, our, um, our, our culture, our DNA, our, you know, what we, everything we stand for. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think, uh, Eric Mogensen, the founder of, of, uh, of, uh, Antibeni, he's a relatively young guy and his, he has a deep background in skiing and a true passion for the sport. Um, his personal brand is very much reflected in the culture at the company. And that's what sets him apart. He's, He's hell-bent on building the best team in skiing. Uh, last year, he snagged Mark Schrotel, one of the most respected GMs in the industry, from Powder Mountain. 
you know, Mark is the COO there at Entebeni now. And the place is stacked with talent from the developer side all the way down through customer service and everything else. They've, they've got a great team. Uh, in fact, just last week, they announced that Troy Hudson, who is the GM at the largest Nordic resort in North America, Sovereign Lakes, up in BC, he's coming on board to oversee their cross-country expansion. He's a great guy. He's highly respected in, in that world. And you know, he's perfect. I, I don't know anything about Nordic. And Eric said he's an Alpine guy. So Eric went out and recruited a guy that really knows Nordic. And that, you know, that tells you cross country is not just a fleeting thing at the Indy Pass. So when you say oversee their cross country expansion, do you mean Entebeni from a back end point of view? Or do you mean the Indy Pass's cross country program or both? Both. That's amazing. So you had 20 cross-country partners last year. So now you have a guy, just that's his whole thing. He's going to be building out that network. Yeah. And now we have an office, so to speak, in Canada. He's based up there. And that opens up some possibilities for us in, in all kinds of ways. Is that one of those things you're kind of glad to give away to someone else? No, I think it's, I, th- I loved it. I thought it was very fun. Um, you know, the cross country resorts are easy. They're low maintenance. They're very appreciative of what we do. And, you know, just because I'm not a participant doesn't mean it's it's not fun and, and interesting. But, you know, one guy can only do so much, right? And uh, there, there's a lot of opportunities out there and it makes sense to divide and conquer. Do you have a sense, Doug, and, and I'll get back to Antibody for a minute, but let me follow this this tangent for a moment. Do you have a sense of what the potential is of that cross-country program? Like, could we see a hundred partners on the Indy Pass for cross-country? I don't think there are a hundred. I mean, I, I know there's a there's over a hundred resorts that sell cross-country day passes, but no, I, I, honestly, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think 50, 60 is easily within reasonable reach, but I don't want to predict. It's hard to say. You know, Canada has a lot of Nordic. And I think potentially we could make some some good dents. We saw very, very encouraging participation at our Nordic resorts this year. And the thing that was most interesting and really what I expected was it was our Alpine pass holders that were going to the the Nordic resorts. There's a lot of crossover out there that people don't realize amongst the two sports. And that's what we were hoping to capitalize on. That's so interesting, Doug. Do you have a sense can you give us what some of the more popular Nordic resorts were for Indy Pass Redemptions? Yeah, Jackson, uh, New Hampshire was number one. I think that uh, Waterville was number two. I mean, New England, of course, the resorts we have up in New England, and I think there's six or seven, were strong. Uh, Woodstock and yeah, Woodstock Cross Country was strong, and Reichert. Those places did well. And just from anecdotally talking to your partners who run those Nordic centers, did you get the sense that they were happy with the program, that, that this was something that they welcomed and, and kind of needed? Yes, they were prepared for very modest results. And, you know, frankly, we delivered modest results, okay? But they see it as a, an opportunity and a way to gain more exposure for their sport and, and get new people in the door. And, you know, for all the same reasons that Alpine Resorts like it, uh, they do too. When you first appeared on this podcast three years ago, you gave the anecdote of Pat's Peak that 
said that they did some research and found that I think it was on the order of 90% of their Indy Pass redemptions were first time visitors. And, and I, I really, what's that? It was 80% the first year. Yeah. And, and I get the sense that really the Indy Pass has really helped put Pat's Peak on the map in New England regionally over these past couple of years. Are, are you seeing something similar with cross country? In other words, are these visits that would not have existed without the Indy Pass? Oh, I'm sure. Yes. I wouldn't go as far as to say we're going to put them on the map, but yeah, there's no question we're driving new visits to those resorts and all of our resorts, frankly. Mm-hmm. All right. Back to Entebeni here. When did you first hook up with Entebeni? You said they've been your tech partner since the start. Did you mm-hmm. just get lucky? Did you do a lot of due diligence? How did you come to Entebeni? Well, it's kind of a funny story. So in early 19, after my first tour of the West with my lab and my trailer, you know, we had 10 commitments from from resorts out West. And I sent out a press release and well, actually I didn't send it out. I just, I called up ski management and Olivia ran it. And the next day, Rich Schmitz from uh, Little Swiss called and said, this is great. I want in. Okay. And the other person that called me that day was Eric Mogensen from Benny, And he said, this is really cool. Uh, we're doing something similar with our software. We're targeting small resorts. I think we can help you. And I said, no, nah, I've already found somebody. We got a contract on the table. We're we're going to sign it and everything's good. But, you know, he, he just kept coming. He kept coming and, you know, kept, kept uh, talking. And he goes, look, I can be there tomorrow. He was in upstate New York okay. at, with his family and his partner, Justinus, was up in Vernon, I think, BC, where he lived, he goes, look, we could be in Portland tomorrow. We really want to meet with you. Don't make any decisions until we do. I said, okay, fine. <laughs> so they flew in just like that. We got together for breakfast and we had a, had a handshake deal by noon. And, you know, those guys agreed to write the code and create the program that would become the Indy Pass for free. Mm. They believed in it that much. And you know, I was talking to software companies and, you know, they were going to charge me, you know, they wanted 20% of the business or mm. tens of thousands of dollars. And I did, I did have another one lined up that was, that was going to be able to work us into their existing framework. But these guys, they had to custom design it to, to make it work the way I, I believed it needed to. And they agreed to do that. And they gave me a screaming deal and the rest is history. So, there's a lot of ways, and I wrote about this the other day, there's a lot of ways that the Indy Pass could have failed. And it seems like from the start, and I was a very early adopter, I bought one of those first passes in 2019. I think I may have been the first ever redemption at Caber because when I showed up and said I had an Indy Pass, the clerk behind the window was like, huh? <laughs> but, yeah. but luckily, Pete was standing behind her and, and sorted it all out. But uh, Pete Meyer, yeah. the one of the co-owners, but it, it's always worked. The system has from day one. I mean, how much of that is credited to and to Benny and, and how smoothly has that worked and how much have they had to adapt on the go? Um, it's all a credit to and to Benny and it hasn't been smooth. I mean, technology is like that. It doesn't always work, but I have to hand it to them. You know, they kept improving the system. They'd hear our stories. Hey, it didn't work in this situation. You know, we need to make these improvements and they kept improving it and they kept dedicating development time to enhancing it so that it worked better. And it's been a good partnership. So you decided that and to Benny would be the best next stewards of any pass. And obviously, when you sell something, you're going to give up some control. 
However, you didn't have to sell until you were satisfied that the next owners would take care of it. So what convinced you that Enta Benny would be the next best stewards of the Indy Pass? That's a really good question. And I pondered it deeply and talked with my team about who would be the best stewards of the pass. And, you know, these guys are committed to helping small resorts succeed against the big guys. That's what they're all about. It's in their DNA. It guides everything they do. And, you know, after four seasons, they're intimately familiar with our pass holders and our resorts and our brand. If you think about it, it's almost a no-brainer. They're the perfect buyer. Did you place any kind of conditions on the sale, Doug? Well, to use a ski area example, there have been ski areas sold, former ski areas, and, and a clause placed indeed that said this can never be redeveloped as a ski area or or land exchange that says this land can never be developed. It's forever wild land. Did, did you do anything like that to ensure that the Indy Pass would uphold certain values or or would not compromise certain characteristics that you'd built into it? Or, or did you just trust them enough and you said, okay, here you go? Yeah, I trusted him. Um, we talked about the things that I wanted to see happen, but we didn't include it in the contract. It wasn't necessary. So, so what are those things? What can you share with us? How do you hope that Entebeni manages IndyPass for hopefully generations? I think they're going to do a better job than I did. Uh, I, I really do. And that's why they own it now. And I, I have no doubt they're going to take it to new heights and that it will be around for a long time. You know, I know my blind spots and they do everything better than, than we did. The only thing that they don't have in their portfolio, so to speak, is, is a lot of marketing depth. But, you know, that's why we're still around. Myself and my partner, Nate Parr, in our agency are going to be around for a while, at least hopefully for a long, long while, to uh, make sure they, they get the marketing right and the brand and continue to sell passes at the pace that we've been doing. So what will Antibeni be able to achieve as owners? You know, maybe it's from a scale point of view, maybe it's from a technology point of view, maybe it's customer service, but what can they do or what do you feel like they'll be able to do that just was maybe more challenging for you to do on your own or you would not have been able to do on your own? Yeah. You know, I'm a marketing guy. I'm a pretty good marketer. They are data centric and with their technical capabilities, they have far better predictive modeling than we did. You know, we designed this thing on the back of a napkin and we were pretty close. But with their technologies and their deep financial resources, they can invest in technology innovations that are going to take it to a whole nother level. They're not looking to make a quick buck and flip it. I can tell you, you know, they're in this for the long run and they're going to do a good job with it. So there's obviously things that you'll want to change and things that you can change. I think what you and the team have done a really good job at from the beginning is you had a really good core system in place and you made little tweaks, right? You used to didn't go on sale till September 1st, those first couple of years. You moved that back into May. You introduced the Plus Pass. You introduced the Allied program. So you made a lot of little tweaks. But what hasn't changed, Doug, is the core. And the, the core product is two days each at a whole bunch of different ski areas for a low price. So talk about the importance of that core operating model and how that may have come up in the sale. And and is there anything else besides that that you really hope that they keep in place because it's just working? No, that's 
That's the secret sauce. The price and the limited days. If it was an unlimited pass, it wouldn't work. There's no way to get 139 ski resorts to all get on the same unlimited pass. It doesn't work. They all have their own season passes. But as a uh, a sample pass, so to speak, it, it works. And, you know, it limits uh, utilization. So, no, those things will not change. And, the, you know, the price, it's going to go up incrementally. Everything does, right? But it will never be priced like anything else on the market. It's always going to be an affordable option for people. So it, it seems as though I, I think the big risk with this thing, right, is that people will buy it for $300 and go use it 50 days. And I'm sure there are people who do that. <laughs> but yeah. now you have a pretty big sample size. And I think that you have probably a sense that that's okay. There's going to be those people and it can weather it. Have you seen that sort of action by a certain group? And have you seen enough evidence that you have the scale to counterbalance that with the average skier who will use this four or five times? Yes. The last two seasons, not 22, 23, but 2021 and 21, 22, we, we gathered enough data that convinced us that the model works and we're seeing that affirmed this year. So there are those people that skied 30, 40 days. I don't think anybody's hit 50, but there's a lot of people that use it zero days. Oh, really? Yeah. And there are a lot of people that use it one day mm. and it all averages out. And that's why the financial model makes sense. And the resorts get a, a decent yield on the payout. So last question on Benny, did you have other bidders? What was, did you shop this around or did you just, was this an organic conversation that evolved between the two of you over time? It was an organic conversation that, that evolved, but, and, you know, I did have other suitors, I can't comment on who they were, you know, what, what that looked like or anything. And if I'd shopped it, you know, we would have had all kinds of interest, I'm sure. But I wanted to make it simple. I wanted to move it to an entity that I was familiar with and that I trusted and that I had confidence in. I also considered and talked to a couple of our owners, you know, our resort owners, you know, turning it into a true co-op and having a dozen of our bigger resorts buy it from me. But, you know, that becomes extremely complicated. And then you've got a situation where, you know, you got something that's run by committee. And the reason that IndyPass has succeeded is because we've been nimble and flexible and we've been able to make quick decisions and, and, and move forward. And I think if it was run like a co-op, it would not be that way. I, I think you see that Doug, with the Powder Alliance and the Freedom Pass, the Freedom Pass has been passed around between owners. And the reality is it, it ends up being as strong as the marketing person who happens to be running it. And when that person leaves, the thing is sort of thrown into chaos. So it's it certainly helps to be dynamic and flexible, but also have a clear chain of command and a clear person in charge. And and I think that that's what you had in when you were running it and you have with Enta Benny as the new owner. So so let's step back here, Doug. You mentioned that you did your first Western tour. You had 10 commitments coming out of it. And I still remember that landing page that you stood up and, and I would check it all the time. And you added new partners throughout the, the summer. But starting with 10, going to 139 partners in four years is just incredible. It was a lot to keep track of 
as a writer and observer, but I can't imagine all of the contracts and emails and pestering people to get things done that had to go on behind the scenes. So so help us understand this. As this thing scaled up, what were the challenges you faced and how did you handle them? Well, the details were crazy. There's no question. But the biggest challenge was we didn't make any money for a couple of years. Wow. <laughs> uh, we didn't, you know, we didn't, we didn't make any money till our third season, wow. and uh, we we financed it with the profit from my other businesses. And my partner took over the agency and allowed me to go full time on the Andy Pass, and he carried us, and that's why it succeeded. And we took some risk, but we both believed in it wholeheartedly. And we knew it was just a matter of time before it would stand on its own. And that happened in, in the third season. So the number I just gave from 10 resorts to when you first publicized this thing to 139 today, 138 if you subtract Snow Valley for next season, but I'm sure you replace that. What other sorts of, and I know a lot of these are guarded, Doug, but what sorts of metrics can you share with us to help frame and understand the past's growth? Uh, you know, by every measure, it's grown phenomenally fast. You know, passes sold, participating resorts, revenue, you name it. You know, in our second season, uh, the revenue grew by 750%. And you know, the third season uh, wasn't anywhere near that, but it's been a fast growing business. And that's, you know, one of the reasons I needed to take a pause, man. It's more risky managing fast growth than it is managing a shrinking business, I think. It's, you know, you have to make quick decisions and you can make the wrong decision, it can have catastrophic effects and it continues to grow. We're seeing good growth today. So when you came on the podcast last year, Doug, it was in, our frame of reference was the 21 to 22 ski season. And you admitted that you thought you would raise the price too much too fast or that you probably should have raised it for 2021. And so to give this context for the listeners, essentially, I think probably because of the pandemic in for the 2020 to 21 ski season, which would have been your second, you kept the price flat at 199. Then for the 2021 to 22 ski season, you raised it all the way up to 279, which was, you know, a big jump, about a 40% jump. And and I think there was some sort of renewal discount available that you sent someone, everyone a coupon code or whatever. However, you didn't meet your projections. Do you feel like the market has sort of absorbed that at this point and, and time and obviously the huge inflation we're seeing in all parts of the economy has sort of leveled that out? Do you, do you, do you think you're, you're sort of you know, have learned from that and have moved on in a more measured way. What, what, what is your thoughts on that whole dynamic? Yeah, it's, it's you can't raise a price. You can't raise the price of anything by forty percent and not piss people off. Right. It's just you know, if eggs are a dollar and you go to two dollars, you're going to get a lot of backlash. If you go up to a buck twenty, yeah, they you know it, it works. So yeah, we had to make that dramatic increase. It slowed our pace. But it right-sized the financial model. And, 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 you know, we didn't just guess that a 40% increase was what we needed to do. We based that price increase on data. And we knew where we had to get it to in order to get the yield where we needed it to be. And we were right. We came in very close to what we predicted. And now we came out this year at 279 
And then it went up to two ninety nine for uh, for new pass holders. I'm sure someday it's going to go over three hundred bucks for an early bird price. But that's still by far the best deal in skiing. There's nothing that comes close. I, I do find the complaints about this a little bit lame because yes, the price has gone up, but look at what you're getting, right? That first yeah. year Indy Pass, I think you went live with 34 partners and then you added Jay Peak and you added Powder Mountain and you added Mount Hood Meadows. These regional true destination resorts that anyone would be happy to pay a full price lift ticket to access are just included on this pass. I mean, the, the growth here has just been amazing, Doug, and the quality of the partners as well. If you told yourself five years ago that you would have 105 distinct Alpine partners on this, and, and they wouldn't all be, you know, Mount Molehill on the edge of, you know, some small city no one's ever heard of, but some pretty major ski areas. Would you have believed this? No, I didn't think we could handle that many resorts without oversaturating, but I was wrong. But I knew everything else. You know, I went back recently and looked at our early business plan and everything has uh, exceeded our expectations in terms of revenue and past growth and everything else. The only thing that I missed on was the number of resorts. So I'm, I'm very pleased that that's been able to grow like it has. And that was an area that we, you know, we took some, some risk in adding more resorts in the Midwest where we already had pretty good density. We packed them in there. You know, the UP now I think has five resorts. Just in, in your home state, we have 10 in Michigan. That's right. You know, we're seeing a small uptick in utilization, but it's not going to hurt the equation. So you think you have the density balance, right? You have 14 in New England, 10 in Michigan, as you said, you have six in Wisconsin, six in Minnesota. That's not even counting allied or cross country. Do, do you think you have the mix right? I do. Yeah. I, you know, I think Intabeni is looking closely at whether or not they can in increase the density. They're certainly not going to take anything away. But yeah, I think we have it pretty well figured out. So the thing worked, I mean, by pretty much any metric. And I think just, you know, looking at the skier reaction, I, everyone really seems to love this thing. And there's always going to be a few curmudgeons, but, but let's ignore them. Why, why do you think that Indy Pass succeeded, Doug? I mean, you said earlier that people have been talking about this for years. So what finally made it work? Right place at the right time, simple redemption structure and, and low price point. Was it this moment we're in with social media where you can easily and freely amplify things? Are you just a really good salesman? Why do you think that the Indy Pass went mainstream so quickly? Why did it succeed? And give yourself some credit here. <laughs> well, I think all those things played a role, okay. Stu. Um, you know, but we also took our time to consult with our resorts. You know, it took, we spent a year talking to resorts about you know what they want and and what they think would work, and other experts, including you. You know, I I remember one time I was driving across uh, Idaho, yeah. pulling my little trailer, and we were talking on the phone, and you know we're, we we must have been on that call for 40, 45 minutes. We're talking about. <laughs> this resort or that yeah. resort, and where can we go next? And I got so excited, I almost crashed. <laughs> I had to call you back. I don't know if you remember this. I do. But, uh, you know, uh, you've been a great sounding board and confidant for me and for the IndyPass, uh, Stu. And, 
you know, there have been others that have helped me along the way. You know, a lot of our GMs and owners have been very forthcoming with their thoughts on on what would work and what wouldn't work. And, and that's really helped us. I mean, I'm no genius, but I do know what I don't know. And uh, what, what I don't know, you know, we ask people that do. And I think that's one of the, the main reasons that we have succeeded. You know, there's some things you can control and there's some things you can't control. And one of the things you can't control is the Epic and Icon passes. And these passes... You know, the, the first year the Icon Pass came out, it almost seemed like a little bit of a secret. Like you know, a lot of the people I knew who skied a lot didn't know about it. Obviously, it overburdened some local ski towns, but it grew very quickly after that first year. But the first year it was it was it was still kind of a a thing that wasn't necessarily a defining piece of many resorts. The, the Epic Pass obviously lowered prices, had some volume issues. As these passes have scaled up and gone very very mainstream. You're seeing more and more skiers, we had record skier visits last year, according to the National Ski Association, concentrated on fewer and fewer resorts, which are these epic and icon resorts. Do you get the sense that the Indy Pass has benefited from that? Because I, I, to give you an example, I didn't go to Steamboat between 2007 and 2020. When I yeah. went in 2020, I couldn't believe how busy that place was, how packed it was, because I'd been there several times before and it always felt like kind of a Colorado backwoods thing. Like it was busy enough, but it wasn't, it, it didn't, it felt very different than I-70 and that had changed by 2020. And that's just one anecdote, right? And the, and the internet is full of them. Do you get a yeah. sense that as, that there is an epic and icon exhaustion and that there are folks who are deliberately seeking out an alternative and that Indie Pass is in fact that alternative? Yes, maybe. Long lines and big crowds have been highly publicized at the big resorts, okay? We've seen plenty of that. But if you've had to drag your family around one of those mega resorts on a sunny Saturday in the heart of winter, and you spent over a thousand bucks for the privilege of doing it, you'd probably rather stick a ski pole in your eye than do it again, right? Right. And it's those experiences that drive people away from the sport. And hopefully, before they finally bail on skiing, they find an independent resort and give that a try before we completely lose them. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people that just... They don't ever get a chance to see what it's like at a smaller place. And it's it's unfortunate and you can't blame the big guys. They're just doing their thing. And but so many people don't don't realize. I mean, at Meadows yesterday, it was crazy busy. You know, for on April 2nd, I was like, okay, I'm done at 1130. You know, I'll come back. But a lot of people would stand in those lines and say, wow, this is, you know, I think I'm going to take up tennis or whatever. And so, yes, I, I think if they give India a try and they try our resorts, they will find that all of the negative aspects of the big resorts don't exist where we live. And we've definitely benefited from that. So we've seen a lot of past coalitions come and go, Doug. The, the Epic Pass has been the most resilient, really, in history, as far as large national multi-mountain passes go, it's been around since 2008. Doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. I think the Icon Pass is very established. Mountain Collective is now on its 11th season. 
do you think the Indy Pass will still be around in 10, 15, 20 years? Oh, yeah. No, no question. We've got a very strong brand. We've got a, a solid business model. And now we have a very savvy team in place that's going to be able to carry the torch for many years to come. I think the Indy Pass is going to be a fixture when you and I are, are long gone. What could ruin it? Uh, honestly, Stu, the only thing that I worry about is Mother Nature. Hmm. Okay. And, you know, if you live in the West, that's not a concern, right? <laughs> but, you know, it's in the back of everybody's mind. And if conditions were to devolve, then, you know, fewer people are going to buy passes and fewer people are going to go skiing. But right now it's rocking and rolling. All right, Doug, I want to come back to the Indy Pass in a minute, but this is your fourth time on the podcast. And typically with these podcasts, I, I start out by talking through folks' backgrounds. And for whatever reason, I, I, I've i never done that with you. And so I want to give my listeners a sense of this full Indy Pass story. This is, as you mentioned, you turned 67 last month or last week and, and happy birthday. But I, I think that's really cool that in a later stage of your career, you did something really awesome. But give us a sense of where did you come from? Where did you grow up? Did you grow up skiing? When, when did you start this whole thing, your ski life? Yeah. So I'm coming up on my 60th year of skiing. Wow. I li- I've lived my entire life in, in uh, Portland and I caught ski fever real bad in 1963. And even though my family didn't ski, uh, my best friend lived next door and his family had a cabin on Mount Hood. Mm. So they would take me up there from time to time. And I caught the bug immediately. That's all I could think about. And, you know, as I grew older, I would take the ski bus up, you know, I'd stay up at a place up there called Cascade Ski Lodge, you know, with bunks and stuff. And then I, you know, I got a license and I could drive myself and it's just always been my passion. Which ski area is on Mount Hood? Oh, uh, well, when I started skiing, Meadows wasn't even there. Oh, wow. But I learned to, I learned to ski at a little place called Multipore. It's now Ski Bull mm-hmm. and Timberline. Those are the two at the time. And, you know, Mount Hood Meadows is my home mountain there, but I, lo- I love skiing at Timberline, you know, in the late spring. And Ski Bowl is amazing too. It's got some of the best terrain on Mount Hood. What was Mount Hood skiing like back then, Doug? Oh, it was very authentic, very, well, you can't say it was old school because then it was, it was new school. <laughs> But, you know, skiing, um, it was exciting because in the, in the 60s, you know, skiing was new and it, it was a cool thing and people were just discovering it. And it was just really an exciting time uh, for, for Mount Hood. And we were blessed to have Timberline Lodge up there, which the Constams rescued from just being a decrepit mess. And, and it was, you know, one of the premier places in the country. And so... Uh, Mount Hood attracted a lot of attention and, and a lot of people that fell in love with the sport. So take us into this a little bit, Doug, because if you go up to Meadows or or Timberline today, you're going to have access to a lot of things that you didn't have access to in the 60s. For example, high-speed chairlifts, uh, modern grooming, powder skis for all that snow you get, waterproof clothes. What, what was the experience like? of skiing up there in the 60s with 1960s gear and skis? <laughs> well, it was fine because we didn't know any better. 
<laughs> but you know, your feet hurt a lot more. Uh, you were a lot colder and wetter, and you definitely couldn't turn as well. <laughs> but you didn't know any better, so it was fine. <laughs> so, so how did that? How did that program you? That experience of growing up in this different era with this different gear, with this different set of expectations, with probably with different crowds. How did this? Do you think? set you up to really favor these independent resorts? Because I think with skiing, we get infatuated with statistics, we get infatuated with the biggest and the best. But do you think that having that experience at that time sort of predisposed you to create this product you created decades later? Yes, it did. Because I was able to experience skiing when it was very innocent and authentic. And then, you know, as I grew older and, and traveled around, I was able, able to experience skiing on the big scale, you know, the, the Whistlers and the Palisades and the Vales, et cetera, et cetera. So I've, I've seen both sides. And, you know, honestly, I, it occurred to me several years ago, I took my young daughter, my youngest daughter on a, on a ski trip and we went to Jackson, but we, we stayed at Targi because a good friend of mine was working there. And, you know, we're sitting at Targi out on the patio. It's a sunny day. We just had a beautiful day of skiing. And I, I looked over at her and I said, man, this is this is way more fun. And I like this way more than our day at Jackson. And, you know, the skiing was phenomenal at Jackson. And we had lunch at the, you know, at the summit restaurant there. It was very luxurious and cool and, you know, rode the tram and everything. Phenomenal experience. But for what I like, and for, for me, it was just way more enjoyable sitting out there on the, on the patio with a beer in a t-shirt at a little place like Targhee. And, and that's when I realized this is what it's all about. You don't need a, a huge mall with chairlifts to enjoy, enjoy the sport. In fact, I think it's detrimental. And that was long before I started the Indy Pass, but that really shaped me. So Doug, when do you think that you can get Targhee on the Indy Pass? <laughs> <laughs> Not anytime soon. I, I tried hard, but uh, we went a different direction. <laughs> All right. So, so you fell in love with skiing growing up at Hood. When did you first start working in skiing or, or what was your first ski adjacent job? Yeah. So I never worked at a ski area. My first job in the ski business was actually doing marketing for ski resorts. And you know, I, I've always been in marketing and I've worked with several resorts over the years and snow sports brands did, did a lot of work for uh, Salmon and developed a, a resort program for Subaru of America. But uh, I've never worked as an employee at a resort. In the, in the early 2000s, we created an event called the Race and Ace. It was a ski and golf competition that we started at Mount Bachelor and we held it at Sun River Golf Resort as a way to attract people in the springtime to Mount Bachelor. Bachelor was, was one of my clients. And it kind of turned into a thing. So we ran with it. We did it for about five years in, in Washington and Idaho and in Bend. And, but it wasn't really financially viable. So we kind of had to move on. In 2016, we created a, a new Get Stoked Festival in Portland called Snowvana. It's kind of the reinvention of your grandpa's ski show. 
Okay, and that will continue. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna continue with that. Uh, Quinn McIntyre, who just wrapped up his short career with the Indy Pass, is gonna go full time with uh, Snowvana and and run that. But yeah, that's kind of my background was working in the industry. My wife told me a few years ago that if you envy someone for what they do, that's what you should be doing. And I've always envied people who work in the ski business. You know, I always thought, man, it'd be such a great lifestyle to live in the mountains and work at a ski resort. But life just got in the way, you know, and it took me until my 60s to, to fully commit to doing that. And, and although I wasn't ever able to work at a resort, the Indy Pass has given me the the opportunity to really immerse myself in the industry and work with some some great people who who do make this sport come to life. It's been the most gratifying aspect of my career, without question. And I plan to stick around for a long time and hang out with all the cool people I've met. It's really amazing to me that you were able to reinvent yourself in your 60s and have your best chapter then. What was behind this, Doug? If you could take us into your mindset here a little bit. I mean, was there like a something in you that said, that actively wanted to still prove something? Was it just sort of fortuitous? I mean, I think the reason I'm asking is I think a lot of people get in a rut and I see folks, even even my own age, just kind of give up, right? And just sort of accept where they are. But it seems mm-hmm. like you drew from some internal well to say, you know, I still have a lot left to give and and you created this really amazing thing. So just take us into this as much as you can. Yeah, well, that's a good question. And, you know, I mentioned um, I had some heart issues in, in, in 2016. I had a couple of heart attacks and I had to get a double bypass. And, I was, you know, that laid me up for several months. And I decided I needed a change. You know, I, I'd been in the agency business for 40 years and I just, you know, I couldn't do it anymore. And that's when we started Snowvana. And it really recharged my batteries working on that. Just a little ski show, you know. I just really got a kick out of it. And then um, two years later, Altera buys up all those resorts and creates the Icon Pass. And I started thinking, you know, maybe there's something here. And, you know, I think it was it was just that... Um, that passion for for the ski business and and for the sport that drove me and uh, I don't think age has anything to do with it. Yeah, I was I was burned out on on my you know previous career, but I don't think anything else could have re-energized me like like skiing did. You know, I was listening to a really interesting podcast the other day with Stephen Collar, who's written this book called Nar Country, and and he did all this research on aging and found that as folks grow older their mind opens itself to new pathways of empathy and wisdom and and a whole assortment of other things. Do you do you feel as though maybe it was an advantage to have started Indie Pass when you did? I mean, you, you know, you've been through all these different phases of life. Do you think you would have handled this differently in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s? Do you, do you think that this is this was the right time for this to happen and and do you think you would have handled it differently had you had this idea 30, 40 years ago? Yeah, I, I think the timing worked out. Like I said, timing is the key to life. And I think my age helped me and it helped me relate and gain the trust of a lot of these GMs and owners who, you know, are from my same generation. You know, we, we had a lot of things in common and it may sound corny, 
but with age comes wisdom and confidence. And, you know, even in my 40s, I was still building those trades. You know, I'd, I was running my own business and all doing all that. But I, I think it took a certain level of maturity to pull it off. And so, you know, I didn't think about it like that. But, I, you know, looking back on it, reflecting on it, and, you know, I think that uh, that benefited me. I wish... I was still 40 <laughs> and, uh, you know, because I'd, I'd be fired up and we'd be, you know, we'd be having a different conversation. Yeah. I mean, not to, not to get sidetracked by this aging thing. And, and I, I realize sixties is not that old, but you know, there's, there's a large body of evidence that folks who a lot of people get sick and or die shortly after they retire. Right. So it, it seems to be important to stay active and to have a, a sense of purpose. I mean, as you've entered your 60s and, and found and really founded this new thing, how much does that energize? You said you had some you know, heart issues seven years ago. I mean, how much has this motivated, energized, sort of been good for your overall health to, to have this sense of purpose and mission and to have created this thing that is national in scale? Well, I don't know about my body, but my emotions and my psyche is benefited significantly from it you know i've i've had the time of my life i still am having the time of my life it's it's been a blast but it's physically exhausting you know if it weren't for the the high that you get from doing what you love you never do it but it's been great and i would say to anybody at any age that if you're not doing what you love then you're probably not living your best life okay doug Let's get back to the past here and talk about one of the more notable changes slated for the 2023 to 24 ski season, and that is the introduction of a physical pass that you will mail to all pass holders. I actually thought it was quite a competitive advantage that you didn't have a physical pass for so long because it just took away this whole layer of infrastructure that you had to deal with. So tell us about the physical indie pass that's coming and why you're introducing this product and, and what it will enable you to do. Well, the best thing about going to a physical pass that it has the potential to get people on the lifts faster and more efficiently. We can limit those lines at the ticket window in, in many cases. Yes, we can go direct to lift at resorts that are on the Antibeni system, but admittedly, that's a small percentage of, of the resorts we now have. But we're also going to be able to issue hand scanners to our biggest resorts where we have the biggest potential for window lines. And when somebody comes to the ticket window, they can just scan their pass rather than having to look them up in the system. And that will limit the redemption time from about 30 to 45 seconds down to 10 or 15 seconds. So there are a lot of benefits to this. It's not going to happen overnight. There are a lot of technology improvements that have to be made. And we don't want to make any huge promises, but those are the things that we're moving towards. And that's what Antipeni brings to the to the package. So direct lift will be nice. It, it seems like, and I, I know we talked about this a little bit earlier, but you have 103 of 105 partners recommitted for next ski season, Alpine Partners. How important is that to you, Doug? And what does that tell you about the Indy Pass? Because we've seen, you know, if you, if you pull up the old Max Pass roster, I mean, it's it's crazy what's on there, and all of those have been divvied up pretty much between 
you and Epic and Icon, and they're all over the place. And we've just seen some wild, crazy coalitions over the years. Like if you go back to American Skiing Company, it just, it could have turned out a little differently. None of this is inevitable is my point, but it's one thing to put these together for a year. It's another to do it for two years, but going on five years, you've really not lost that many partners, just a handful. Why is that? And what does that mean to you? Well, I, I think uh, the, the reason is, is because we deliver value for the resorts and they like getting those checks. <laughs> and, they like, you know, our, our pass holders are good customers. They are, uh, for the most part, they're courteous and they're glad to be there. And, and in a lot of situations, they haven't been there before. And it takes a lot to, to generate a new customer in today's ski business. And People fall into their habits. They go to their their favorite resorts, and that's it, you know. And you know we've changed that dynamic, and so the resorts like it. They like the revenue. They like the added people. They like the brand. They like being affiliated with a brand that stands for independence and authenticity, and the little guys banding together and and telling the world how great it is. You know, all of that I think works. In our favor. So I know that all resorts in in your eyes, you want to say are equal, but the the truth is some of them are more important to the past's growth than others. And I want to go back here to 2020 when Jay Peak signed with IndyPass. How crucial was that signing in 2020 to the trajectory of the IndyPass? How how much did that change the way people perceived the pass, accelerate the trajectory of how, how those things sold? Jay Peak was a huge win for us, and it really helped us establish the Indy Pass as a legitimate option to Epic and Icon in New England. And when we made the announcement, it—I mean, we sold passes. It—it it gave us a nice bump, and prob- probably uh, a bigger bump than I've ever seen from the announcement of a, a new resort. You know, Jay is. You can make a good argument it's the best ski area in New England. There, It has some peers, but no betters. That's for certain. And every single year, you have to resign them. And I know you're sweating that. It, what, long term, would you like to get rid of single-year contracts and move towards something maybe a little more long-term, three, five years? Yes, and that's in the works. I know Intibeni is going to try and get that done because every February, March, you know, we go through the same dance. It's a lot of work. And, you know, I think we've proven the success of the, the past. I've talked to a number of owners and GMs, and they're all more than happy to sign a three-year deal. And some will never sign a three-year deal. But if we can get the bulk of our, our resorts on a multi-year deal, it'll definitely simplify things. You know, I, I don't want to overstate the importance of Jay, and, and I know that it's it's been a headliner for you and will continue to be as long as it's around, which hopefully is a long time. You know, Mountain Collective, your competitor, has lost the following resorts as partners. Whistler, Telluride, Stowe, Palisades, Tahoe, Sugarbush, Mammoth. That's a pretty impressive roster, and they're all gone, and yet the pass continues to expand and seems to be doing just fine. Do you think that IndyPass has built up enough brand equity, enough loyalty, enough additional partners in New England that you could weather the loss of a J-Peak at this point? Yes, absolutely. We were prepared for PGRI to take Jay off the pass this year. You know, We had a game plan in place for that contingency, 
Fortunately, that wasn't necessary, and our pass holders are certainly thankful that that they're back. But uh, you know, I think the Indy Pass has evolved to the point where it's not defined by a single resort, and that's a tribute to all the resorts on the pass and the nature of the pass. It's a collective, and it's a coalition of 139 resorts, and that's why people buy it for the variety. Yeah. So you you mentioned earlier, Doug, that if Mountain Capital Partners came to you and wanted to add Purgatory onto the Pass, you would say no, but you know Jay is now owned by a little conglomerate of Pacific Group Resorts, and they own six ski areas across the continent. Why were you inclined to keep Jay on, even after they were bought by a bigger company? Was was it just a legacy relationship? Is it is there something different about PGRI? What what's what's your answer to that? You know, I think that PGRI runs their resorts like they're all very independent. Okay, that's that's one thing. And I think that, yes, they are a conglomerate, I guess. You know, you could say they're a, a corporation that owns, you know, multiple ski resorts. So therefore, they don't qualify. But, you know, IndyPass is a corporation. There's nothing wrong with being a corporation. And furthermore, I think even if they are technically not an independent operator or whatever, I think that the end justifies the means. You know, JP sells a lot of passes for us, and those pass holders go to places like Pat's Peak and Black Mountain and Magic Mountain, et cetera, et cetera. And that's good. That's a good thing. So, you know, I've, I've had people tell me that, wow, they, you know, you're, you're selling out to the, to the, you know, corporate interests, uh, but that's okay. They can think that, but what's good for the group is good for the group. So Pacific Group Resorts has five other ski areas. They have Wisp in Maryland, Wintergreen in Virginia, Ragged in New Hampshire, Powderhorn in Colorado, and Mount Washington Alpine out on Vancouver Island. I think any of those would probably fit well onto the Indy Pass. Have you had discussions with PGRI about potentially adding any of their other ski areas to Indy Pass? Oh, yes. Multiple discussions. And, uh, you know, my hope is that someday we'll be, we'll be able to do just that. Right now, though, that's that's probably not going to happen this year. And But we will continue to talk to those guys and uh, see where it goes. So what can you tell us, Doug, about the 2023 to 24 Indy Pass lineup? You had a note in your press release earlier this week in which you confirmed 102 of 105 past partners. I'm sorry, I guess that was last week. Uh, You said up to a dozen more ski areas were queued up to to join the Indy Pass. So what can you tell us about those partners and which tier, Allied, Cross Country, or Full Alpine, they'll be joining? We are currently talking with over a dozen primarily alpine and cross-country resorts across the U.S., Canada, Japan. We're going to expand in all three countries, and there's going to be some great additions. I can't talk about the specifics, and we're probably not going to announce anything until the fall. We're going to take the summer and the off-season to really formulate some new relationships and see if we can add capacity to the Indy Pass where it's needed so that we can absorb more pass holders. And, you know, once we get that group rounded up, we're going to be make uh, one hell of a big announcement and we'll be ready for the 23-24 season. All right, let's talk about the Allied program for a moment, Doug. Can you reflect on this program a little bit for year one? I've talked to a lot of partners who are part of it and and gotten their thoughts on it. But you know, what what do you think? So this is a program for the listeners who aren't familiar, where 
your indie pass will get you half off during weekdays, 25% off lift tickets on weekends and holidays at Allied Resorts. Allied Resorts season pass holders can add an indie pass on at the add-on rate. What, what do you think about season one, Doug? What went right? Uh, what didn't go so great? How would you like to evolve that program? I'm not sure, to be honest with you. You know, it was a bit of an experiment this past year, and we've talked to a handful of those uh, allied resorts about their experience. Many of them have hardly signed on for next year, but we really need to go through and and give it a, a real careful analysis, talk to all those resorts, find out what worked for them, what, what didn't, and uh, do we need to make some tweaks? Uh, we're not sure. I mean, We've had our hands full just confirming all the Alpine resorts and, you know, getting passes on sale. And in the off season, we'll be able to turn our attention to the Allied program and also the cross-country program. That's why we haven't really made those announcements yet. All right, Doug, last question for you today. Can you leave us with your thoughts on blackout dates? I think that the biggest problem in skiing, from my point of view, is Saturdays. And I, and I think neither Epic nor Icon have done a good job of addressing this. They're very committed to the traditional blackout periods of Christmas, MLK, and and Presidents, and Vail extends that to Thanksgiving as well. Indy has allowed its resorts to also blackout select Saturdays and or Sundays during peak season. Do you, th- and, and I know there was, you know, you've gone in a lot of different directions with this and tried a lot of different things. There were no blackouts the first year, and then you had a few, and then you had maybe too many, and then you scaled that back. So so what are your thoughts? Do you think you finally got the balance right for 2022 to 23? Do you think we'll see a, a similar blackout grid next year, or, or is it too soon to say? We are going to stick with the same blackout tiers that we had last year. They worked beautifully. The resorts really liked them. The pass holders found that they were easier to understand. And I think we finally nailed it after four years. The ability to black out Saturdays and or Sundays from Christmas through mid-March is crucial, I think, for the industry. And we don't black them out completely. If you have an Indy Plus pass, you can. there's no blackouts, right? right? But you have to pay an extra hundred bucks. And by doing so, that allows us to pay out nearly 100% of the, the ticket price that you would pay at the window for that day. Wow. The resorts love it because they're not giving up a big discount on a day when they're sold out or they're selling out of day tickets. And our pass holders love it because they don't have to, to worry about whether or not they can ski on a blackout day. It's working, and, and I think that other passes and, and other areas of the industry are, are going to recognize that. And it's like anything else, Stu. Um, you know, if you want to sit in the front row at a sporting event or a concert, you're going to pay a lot more. And if you want to fly in first class, you're going to pay a lot more. And if you want to ski on a Saturday in February, well, I'm sorry, but it's going to cost you a little bit more. <laughs> and that's just the way it is when you got – Uh, fixed supply and growing demand. Okay, there you go. That was the first part of my conversation with IndyPass founder and president Doug Fish, recorded on April 3rd, 2023. The last little bit that you're about to hear is an update, recorded on April 20th, in which Doug and I get into the pass sales pause, potential new partners for 2023 to 24, and this is always one of my favorites every year, 
the top 10 Indy Pass ski areas by number of redemptions for the 2022-23 to ski season. Back to it. So Doug, on April 11th, Indy Passes went off sale. Why did you decide to limit Indy Pass sales this year? And why did you decide to cut them off on that date? You know, it's been our plan from early this season that we were going to restrict pass sales. And we just reached our limit way earlier than we expected. I mean, when I saw that you were considering limiting them, I thought, you know, maybe summer, maybe fall. I didn't expect this thing to be on sale for what ended up being, I think, less than a month. Did it surprise you that you had to take them off sale so soon? Yes, I thought we'd be selling well into June. I, you know, I knew we were going to uh, probably cut off sales at some point, but I, I didn't think it'd be until the summer. Uh, sales were just way beyond what we anticipated. So you broke this into three tiers, I guess. The first was a renewing pass holder period. The second was a sale to folks who had joined the wait list. And the third was just a general public sale. And you raised the pass price about twenty, exactly $20 each time. How did each of those sales periods go for you? Again, they each exceeded our expectations. Our, our renewal rate was an all-time record. The wait list was way bigger than what we expected, and we had great sell-through on that. And the general public, admittedly, was the third largest of the three tiers, but it still did very well. And you know, we, like I said, I, we expected it to go for a few weeks uh, at least, and we wrapped up quick. So you made the decision. It was a, a surprise decision for a lot of folks, I think. What has the reaction been like so far in the marketplace, as far as you can tell? You know, I read the, the comments in the pass holders page, and those people are stoked. They love what we're doing. You know, if you get the last stool at the bar, you're pretty happy. Yeah. The guy behind you that didn't, you know, doesn't have a seat, he may not be so happy, but you know, everybody that bought passes is is really happy that we're doing this. And as far as the other folks that didn't get passes, well, we haven't really heard that much from them. So, you know, maybe everybody got a pass that wanted one. We don't we don't know. Are you concerned at all that you may have alienated potential pass holders or that this move works against your mission to make affordable skiing available for the average skier? Um, yeah, we're, we're going to probably lose some pass sales to the other guys, you know, because people will look at that and say, oh, well, I can't get an Indy pass, so I'll, I'll buy something else. We know that's going to happen, but we put the pass on sale at 279 Stu. That's pretty phenomenal considering what you get for 279 And the wait list was at 299 Still an incredible deal. So yes, we are making it available. And everyone who wanted to buy a pass did. Uh, we just didn't want to let the thing run for six more months like we have in the past. But yeah, I mean, we're still providing by far the most affordable way to get on the slopes there is. You know, it's really interesting to see the idea of a pass limit for Indy Pass, because what I think the Indy Pass has done better than any other multi-mountain pass is provide their partners with a number of different ways to meter skier traffic. So you have, for one, you allow whatever resorts want to, to require reservations for Indy Pass holders. Mm -hmm. You also 
allow them to limit the number of indie redemptions per day. Mm -hmm. And probably one of the most impactful I've seen is that you allow your partners to select from a suite of blackout dates so they can choose either Christmas week, Mm -hmm. MLK and President's weekends, Mm -hmm. and all Saturdays or all Sundays throughout the winter. And then they can pick you know, any combination of those, right? And, and that is not something that's available on any other pass that wants to keep the product very standardized with a few variations. Why wasn't that sufficient, Doug, to let your partners meter traffic rather than doing it on your end? That's a very good question. And people, a lot of people have asked that question, but problem is you got to pick your blackout tiers in the summer, Right, because we we publish everything in the fall. Last year, you had to pick your blackout tiers in the spring. But we're going to push it off until late summer. So you pick your blackout tiers. You say, okay, we're going to blackout the holidays. That should take care of us because you know we didn't have any problem on those other weekends. And you know, then you know MLK weekend rolls around and it's raining, and you go, oh man, we're blacked out on Indy. So we're we blew that one. And then President's Weekend rolls around and it's, you know, 10 below and and icy. And you go, oh, man, we blew that one, too. Jeez. And then the following weekend, they get, you know, two feet of fresh snow and it's sunny on Saturday and they're sold out by nine o'clock. And they're thinking, oh, man, this was the day we wanted to black out. Right. Right. And, you know, that happened. You know, we had blackouts at, at a lot of resorts on the holidays. And, you know, sure, that worked fine. But Magic Mountain, for example, you know, they, they had a, a rough go of it early season and they wanted to cancel their blackouts. I think I think it was MLK weekend. They sent out an, a, an email or a notice. They put it on social that they were canceling the blackouts for for that holiday weekend. And come on down. Right. Well, not that many people were, you know, were informed about it, unfortunately. So that, that didn't work too well. But what happened was, you know, we got some sunny Saturdays. Uh, we got some good days and people flocked to the resorts because they weren't blacked out and they were sold out by 930. And a third or, you know, a large percentage, let's say a large percentage of their pass holders or their, their attendees that day, their skier visits were attributed to IndyPass. And we had a couple of reports of 45 minute, 60 minute ticket lines to get your Indy pass, you know, well, blackouts weren't going to solve that, you know, and, and we, we can't give them the ability to say, Oh God, look, the conditions are perfect this weekend. So let's black it out. You know that we can't do that. So in a sense, these guys want to generate as much volume as they can. So they're reluctant to do blackouts. And it's that reluctance that, you know, will create some problems. And so, you know, we're going to meter the whole thing and we're building in some growth. There's no question. We're going to build some growth into this season, but it's not going to be the kind of growth that we would do if we just let it run. And we're going to see how that goes. We're going to see if we have any 60 minute ticket lines or 30 minute ticket lines. And if things go pretty smoothly, then we'll bump it up again. But rather than let this thing go crazy and realize, uh oh, we went too far too fast. And now people are pissed. Pass holders can't get into the parking lot and the resorts are overwhelmed. And we thought it would be better to just kind of pump the brakes and see how it goes. Did you consider anything other than a full stop in sales? Like, did you consider, for example, 
just keeping the plus pass on sale or just keeping the add-on pass on sale or maybe raising the price by $100. Yeah, but I, I think it's easier just to cut it off. I mean, we don't want to gouge people. And, and to Benny, you know, frankly, they're in a, a lot better uh, position than I was. And they don't need to sell every single pass they can. They can take their time and, and evaluate the data and see how it goes. And kudos to them. They bought this business and uh, they're not trying to squeeze every red cent that they can out of it. So there's a chance that we've not seen the last of the 2023 to 24 Indy passes. In the announcement that they were going off sale, Indy did say that they could come back in the fall. What are the factors you're going to use to determine whether we'll have another chance to buy Indy passes? Well, we are in the process right now of adding a whole bunch of resorts to the roster. And uh, before we started the podcast here, Stuart, you know, we had a little side discussion and I shared some of that with you. And uh, we're really excited about the potential to add quite a bit of capacity to our resort partners in all regions of the country. And if we do that, well, we're going to be able to sell more passes. That's, you know, that, that's number one. We're, it'll also give us some time to really evaluate, you know, where we sold our passes so far this year. Did we sell 50% more passes in Boston or was it more spread out? And by looking at that, we can determine if certain regions of the country are perhaps overpopulated. And then lastly, we raised the price 20 bucks and then we raised the price 20 bucks. And if we go back on sale in the fall, we're going to obviously have another price tier increase. And now that we have kind of a fixed number, we can take a look at that. We can look at our historical redemption numbers and we can determine just exactly what that next price has to be in order to hit the yield numbers that we want to hit for next year. And all that takes time. And we wanted to take the off season to get it right. So Doug, I'm curious what the reaction has been like from your resort partners so far. Most of them, when you first announced this, I don't want to say most of them, several of them expressed to me, some of them on the record, that they were not a fan of limiting past sales. And I'm talking about places like Titus Mountain, New York, which I don't know if you've been there, but it is at the absolute end of nowhere. Right. They do not have to worry about getting overwhelmed. Yeah. Have you found that some of your partners who were initially resistant are coming around or is there still some skepticism among them as a whole as far as the direction that you're going? And I'm wondering if that's compounded at all by the fact that this is under new ownership and and there's a little bit of uncertainty. You know, there really hasn't been that much pushback. There's been a couple of people that have questioned that why are we cutting it off? You know, why, why limit a good thing? But like I said, we've built the growth into this season. And if we cut it off today, they would be more than happy with the result. They like the results that they got last year. They're going to love the results that they get next year. But yeah, a couple of people questioned it and, you know, we had conversations with them and I think they were appeased. Well, certainly there are some Indy Pass partners where they do see significant volume from the past. I understand that you can share the top 10 with us, Doug, for 2022 to 23 redemptions. So lay it out for us. Who were the top 10 most visited Indy Pass partners with Indy Pass redemptions for the 2022 to 23 ski season? Okay. The drum roll, please. Uh, starting <laughs> at number 10. Lutzen Mountains, Minnesota. Ooh, good one. Number nine, Powder Mountain, Utah, the largest 
ski resort in North America. At number eight, we have Berkshire East, Massachusetts. At number seven, uh, Magic Mountain, Vermont. And uh, following on uh, right behind or just ahead of Magic and a new resort to the top 10, the top 20 actually, is Saddleback, Maine. Oh, look at that. No blackouts. That's that was it, right? Yeah, that was a big deal. Yes, where okay. a lot of resorts in the, in New England uh, added blackouts. Saddleback took theirs away, and they reaped the benefits. People drove the extra few miles to get up there, and they had a pretty decent year snow wise too. Yeah, Jim Quimbu was just on the podcast. Jam at Saddleback. He said that product has been huge for them. Yeah, they're big fans. I'll tell you. Okay, so the top five. Uh, number five, Bolton Valley, Vermont. Number six, or number four, rather, Pat's Peak in New Hampshire. Number three, Cannon Mountain, New Hampshire. Number four, Waterville Valley, New Hampshire. And number two, right? Or number two, excuse me. Yes, number two, Waterville Valley. And uh, number one, Pomerel, Idaho. No, just <laughs> Our, our, uh, our, uh, Current, future, and past uh, leader, Jay Peak Vermont. So if I'm not mistaken, that is three years in a row for Jay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. People love to- Unbelievable. Yeah. We got- and their season's not even done yet. No, they're still so- packing them up. And I mean, we just have so many pass holders back in the Northeast. And, you know, Jay's, you know, one of the best, if not the best mountain in, in New England. And, you know, pe- people love it. So, Doug, if I'm not mistaken, and I want to underscore this point for everyone listening, number one through eight were all New England. That is correct. Unreal. Mm-hmm. You can't doubt the passion in New England. It is just a phenomenal ski culture, phenomenal ski region. And there's nothing that underscores that better than that list you just read, Doug. Well, those are eight incredible resorts. I've skied them all. They're wonderful places. Uh, The people that run them are great people. And I'm not surprised at all that they're doing that kind of volume for us. So Doug, typically you don't itemize past number 10, but outside of New England, regionally, what were your regions of strength? Are, Are there any particular pockets that continue to stand out? Yeah, the Northern Rockies and Pacific Northwest, uh, Mounted Meadows was did very well. You know, Brundage and Tamarack continued to be a you know the dynamic the dynamic duo of Payette River Valley there in Idaho, and we've got a lot of pass holders in Washington. So Forty Nine and Silver Mountain and Mission Ridge and and White Pass all do very well and are just super solid. You know, it really helped to get Mountain High and Dodge Ridge on the pass, along with uh, China Peak and Snow Valley. Snow Valley, unfortunately, uh, went away because Altera purchased them. But, uh, you know, we definitely made some inroads down there in SoCal. And Utah with Beaver and Powder continued to pull people in from the Midwest and the East Coast constantly. And I'll say that, you know, there was a little bit of a rough patch there in the Northeast for for snow this Mm -hmm. year. Boy, those people headed west because the West was killing it. And, you know, we just saw huge numbers of people from the Midwest and the East Coast head out and visit our resorts in the West. 
How were redemptions in the upper Midwest? Uh, you have a, a lot of resorts and a lot of very high quality resorts in the upper Midwest, including Lutzen, which you mentioned was number 10. Granite Peak, you have Big Powderhorn up there, Snow River, and you also added Nubs Knob. So curious how your Midwest business was this year. Very solid. Very solid. You know, N- Nubs, Marquette, Snow River, all new resorts for us. They did very well. Of course, Lutzen is just a, a wonderful, wonderful resort. You know, most people consider it to be the best in the Midwest. And Granite Peak, you know, those those are our powerhouses up there in the in the Midwest now, and they they all did very well. As did some of the smaller guys like Little Swiss and Trollhagen and Tyrol Basin. Those guys all did very well. We have a great following in the Midwest. Well, Doug. With that, I will give you your day back. We certainly didn't keep it to an hour this year, but I'm telling you with my listeners, that's okay. They cannot get enough of the Indy Pass. I appreciate you so much, Doug, and all the time that you've given to the storm over the years. Congratulations on the sale. I am looking forward to seeing what you, who you add this year. So thank you very much. Thank you, Stu. It's, it's been a pleasure working with you over the last four years, and I, I look forward to the next time we chat. That's Doug Fish, president and founder of the Indy Pass. That was fun, Doug. Always great to rap with you. You can see why I keep inviting him back. Tremendous insight and honesty as always. I do want to make one final point today. For those of you concerned with how Entebeni will run Indy Pass, from a certain point of view, Entebeni has been running Indy from the beginning. When you bust up to the ticket window and you produce your driver's license, and a clerk hands you a lift ticket 25 seconds later, that's all Entebeni. Then you get the text and the email confirming your redemption, and then the mountain gets paid. That's all Entebeni. Doug built this thing. He is the visionary behind the product. No one is disputing that. But the reason it works is because he chose the right tech partner to make that backbone happen. And now that the thing lives with them, and to Benny is only going to make Indy better. And with that, I will thank you all for listening. Lots more pods ahead. Got a whole lot of California headed your way. Coming off of my big California roadie in March. As the leaders of Palisades Tahoe, Heavenly, and Mount Baldy will join me in quick succession on the podcast. Then you will hear from the leaders of Banff, Sun Peaks, Stevens Pass, Dartmouth Skiway, China Peak, Timberline, West Virginia, Keystone, Copper Mountain, Atitash, and my first South American podcast, Valley Nevado, Chile. To get those podcasts as soon as they are live, please subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter and paid subscribers to receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.